When a calf is born, a calf must be up and walking within two hours of delivery. Now, the reason for that is because cattle are naturally prey animals, not like this, but with an E. They're prey animals. And so if they're out in the wild, they're obviously susceptible to bears or cougar attacks or wolves. And even in our county, there are a lot of coyotes. In fact, his cousin was killed by a coyote last year, 30 minutes after it was born. So these calves have to be up on their feet and walking within two hours. It's very, very crucial that this happens. And it's because they are weak. Now, in many respects, we are like calves when it comes to our susceptibility to spiritual attack. If we lay down, if we fall down and don't give up, if we don't stand firm, if we don't move forward in our faith, there's a lot of enemies out there that hate our guts and want to take us down and want to make hamburger out of us. We have the world that hates us. We have the devil that hates us. And unfortunately, we have some susceptibilities in our own lives, some vulnerabilities in our own lives that can trip us up. So as we go to God's word today, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the message that comes through loud and clear is that we as God's people can and must stand firm in our faith. We can because we're resourced to do so. We must because if we don't, will be destroyed. So we can and must learn to stand firm in our faith. And the question then becomes, how? How do I stand firm in my faith? Let's look at this passage and learn how to stand firm in our faith. Here's the first lesson we're going to see in the opening verses. We need to stand firm against false doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. We need to stand firm against false doctrine. Here's what the Bible says, beginning with verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers. Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church. They're brothers. They're true believers. And he starts off by identifying what we would call a cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, a fundamental of the faith, a core doctrine, if you will. And it's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we we believe many things as Christians, but if you were to say, okay, what are the things that you absolutely have to believe in order to be a Christian? If you don't believe them, you're actually a heretic, a false teacher, what would they be? Well, they would include the triunity of God, That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all equally God. Three persons eternally existing in one essence. We would say second to that, that the word of God is the authoritative word of God. Third to that, we would say you must believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Fourth, you must believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, thereby sidestepping our 
main problem, which is the inheritance of a sin nature through our fathers. You would also need to believe that Jesus Christ is coming back. And finally, you would need need to believe that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are six fundamentals to the faith. Those are the kind of things that if you're thrown up against a wall, you should be willing to take a bullet for. They're fundamentals. So here in this passage, we have one fundamental raised to the surface as Paul addresses this church in Thessalonica. Now, why does he raise this topic? Well, let's read on. Verse 2 says, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord refers to the final events. It's not just one specific day, but the final events that will bring about God's judgment upon the earth, God's taking of the righteous And the final culmination of all things. The Old Testament prophet spoke of this. The New Testament speaks of it. This is the day of the Lord. And apparently, some in this church were being shaken in their mind or alarmed because someone, either a spirit, the Bible says, or someone that verbally said this to them, or someone that wrote them a plagiarized letter claiming to be from an apostle, told them, well, Jesus has already come back. So he says to them, Let no one deceive you in any way. Let no one deceive you, church. For the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and a man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his place in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This church had received false reports that Jesus had already returned. But the Bible teaches, and Paul reminds the church in this situation, that that was impossible. Because certain things that are part and parcel of the day of the Lord had not yet happened. And two things in particular he draws their attention to. It won't come in secret because there's going to be a global rebellion against God. And an individual known as the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction was going to be revealed. Last year, or earlier this year, we studied as a church the whole book of Revelation. And so I already taught on this a little bit. You can look those sermons up online if you're interested in studying this further. But I already touched down on this passage. In fact, I believe I quoted from this passage when I was preaching some of the latter chapters in Revelation. In Revelation, we have a similar description being applied to an individual known as the beast. And there, we see similar language to what we see here. The language of a son of destruction, proclaims himself to be God, operates by the activity of Satan, performs false signs and wonders. And as I taught back then, I'll teach now, that is that this individual, the man of lawlessness or the beast, or one that's often known in scripture as the Antichrist, mentioned in 1 John 2, 18, if you want to write this down, 
mentioned in 1 John 2.21, 1 John 4.3. This could represent an individual or a nation or a collection of nations, some system that at the level of DNA hates God and the people of God. And everything they do is essentially contrary to and in opposition to the sovereign rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the man of lawlessness, the opposite of law, the opposite of morality. Now, all through history, way back, way back from ancient times, the people of God have been exposed to forerunners, foreshadowers of the ultimate antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast. Sort of small a antichrist, anti-gods. We can think back to Daniel's prophecy in the last five chapters of Daniel, where he spoke of the nations that would come, that would stand opposed to God. One of them was the nation of Babylon, that Daniel was under the rule of. After the Babylonians, who came next to govern the world and all their godlessness, the medial Persians, they collapsed. Then the Greeks came under Alexander. That kingdom eventually collapsed. Then we have the Roman Empire that came and it eventually collapsed. But what's the common thread between these four nations? They stand opposed to the things of God. And Daniel talks about their existence during what he calls the 69 weeks, something like a 483 year period of time before the coming of Christ. But there's one seven-year period he talks about that would take place in the distant future or another anti-Christ-like figure, a man of lawlessness would rise up and thumb their nose at God. We have the emperor Caligula. We have the emperor Nero. There's been all sorts of anti-Christs, small a, men of lawlessness that have existed throughout time. But in the end, there will be one cataclysmic destructive ruler that will come into the world and reveal his sinister purposes. These are things that the people of God will see happening or about to happen before the second coming of Christ. So Christ is not going to come in some secretive way. It's not like we're like, Hey, I wonder if he came last week. Now we're taken up with him in the air. It's going to be evident that the man of lawlessness will be at work in this world. And the absence of these events then indicates what? That Jesus has not yet come back. However, for the early church, false teachers were going around teaching otherwise. Spirits, oral preachers, people writing letters. Now, you got to ask yourself the question, how low will liars and false teachers go in order to try to dupe you? How low will they stoop in order to try to dupe you? Well, apparently there were some, and this is noted elsewhere in the New Testament, that actually were writing fake letters <laughs> to the church, signing it off as Paul or Peter or Timothy and the like, to try to dupe the church with their lies. Can you imagine that? Now, liars are generally convinced of what they believe. Presumably, these individuals were convinced of what they believed, but their tactics were immoral. They used lies to try to deceive the people of God. Likewise, we can assume, even today, 
sitting in churches like ours, perhaps, are liars. People that don't really love God have surrendered themselves to him. But people who have an agenda that's contrary to the word of God could be demonic in origin, could be human in origin. But the word of God is calling us here to guard ourselves against being duped by false doctrine. By the way, one of the advantages that we have of living at this point in human history is we have 2,000 years of church history behind us. We can actually study false teachers from history. We can study cults. We can study the characteristics of their leaders. We can study their tactics. We can see how their false prophecies failed. And studying them is actually quite helpful because it helps us to be aware of perhaps the potential for false teaching in our own lives so that we're not duped. Here's some characteristics that we often see in false teachers that we can do our little assessment with in our own lives. One of the things that you'll often see with false teachers is that they're teaching, but almost nobody in Christianity even agrees with them. But they're like, well, we're the remnant. We're the only people that understand the truth. We get this special angle on the word of God. We know more than everybody else. But virtually nobody else in Christianity agrees with them. They're like, that's weird. That's aberrant. That's heretical. That's false. You got to watch out for that. If you're seeing something in scripture that no one's ever seen before, you might convince yourself you're like the last man or woman standing. Probably not. You're probably buying into falsehood. Second to that, you'll often notice among false teachers that they have never had their views or their research into the scripture vetted by scholars, by other students of scripture. Why, why, do they, why are they so convinced that they're right? Just because they're right. They really, really believe they're right. I can tell you, I used to really, really believe I was right about a few things. And I wrote a few papers for my seminary profs. And they're like, you're wrong. And here's why. And you're like, oh, so sincerity is not enough? Being really, really convinced is not enough to be right? No, it's not enough. If it doesn't square up with the word of God, it's incorrect. By the way, this is one of the benefits of seminary. Frankly, no offense to our seminary buddies out there, they do a terrible job training people for ministry, but they do an awesome job training people to interpret and preach the word of God. I think the church does a better job training people in the actual practices of ministry because there's pastors and churches that are committed to that. But one of the things that I've been hugely blessed by through my seminary education is being challenged. You're writing papers year after year and you're being challenged to read and your views are always being critically analyzed. And it starts to, it sharpens your mind. It makes you more careful, but at the same time, competent in your study and exposition of the word of God. Now, this is not to diminish the capacity of the lay person to study scripture. But what we need to understand is that if our study of scripture is limited to me, myself, and I sitting in my living room, studying the Bible and arriving at my conclusions with no influence from others, it's pretty easy to slip into false teaching. You know, the word of God calls us to a point within our churches 
teachers, and preachers. And if all of us are sort of just equally gifted, and if the word of God is just like totally from one cover to the next, self-evident, and requires no interpretation, no deep study, then what in the world am I doing up here today? Why don't we just all go home and read our Bibles by ourselves? What we understand from God's word, and I'm going to give you an example of this, is yes, we can read our Bibles, and yes, we can study God's word, but we also need to be thankful that God brings into our lives teachers and preachers and expositors and interpreters to help us to see what we otherwise might not see. So a great example of this takes place right back in the Old Testament. So if you go back to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, the people of God had been off in captivity for 70 years. They were pretty incompetent in their study of the word of God. They've come back into the land and God raises up competent men to teach and to interpret the Bible for them. So at the tail end of chapter 8, verse 7, lists a whole bunch of names and it says they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And then look at verse 8. This is Nehemiah 8, 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense. That means they interpreted it so that the people understood the reading. The so that they understood the reading is the end result of someone interpreting it for them. And I think sometimes we get this wrong because we sort of have this super spiritual notion. I've got the Holy Spirit. I got a Bible. I'm just going to open my Bible and everything's going to make absolute and total sense to me. Well, that's not my story. I got to study God's word. I got to be challenged in my understanding of God's word. I want to listen to other competent teachers of God's word that can help me to understand the word of God. That's playing it safe and playing it biblical. But one of the marks of false teachers is they don't need any of that. They got their Bible. It's me, myself, and I. They're going to handle on the truth. doesn't matter what you say, how you challenge them. This is their Bible. They understand it from cover to cover. And this is dangerous. This is how cults start. A third characteristic of false teachers is an absence of the fruit of the Spirit. There's no love for God or others, joy, peace, patience. Instead, there's debate, there's arrogance, pride, self-confidence. These kinds of things that are marks of the carnal life. And then the result, as we read in this text, is that people become alarmed or worried or unsure about what they believe. False teaching is real, folks. And we need to guard against it. If this was being written in modern times, it might say, whether you've received it by spirits, whether you've received it through oral preachers, whether you've received it through fake letters, and then we need to add what? Whether you've read it on the internet. Just because it's on the internet, just because it's posted on the internet, doesn't mean it's necessarily biblically true. 
Here's what it says in verse five. Paul says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Remember what you were taught. Remember what you were taught. Take it back to the Bible and then get input from competent students of scripture to make sure you're reading it right. So the first way we stand firm is basically guarding this thing up here. We stand firm against false doctrine. The second one relates more to our heart. The second truth is we need to be firm in our belief of God's power over evil. You know, it's easy. You look at the world around you like, it's nuts out there. Whew. It's easy to think, God must have walked. God must no longer be on his throne. God, God must be losing. It's easy to have that kind of a mindset. So into those question marks, God, as he discusses evil, also communicates to his people how much he's actually restraining evil. Look at verse 6 and 7. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may revealed and be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. If you think it's bad out there, you'd be surprised how much worse it would be if God wasn't restraining evil to the degree that he is. I, I find it interesting, too, that the man of lawlessness is spoken of as a he and an it in this passage. Because presumably it is a, an individual or a nation that is to come, but it also is an it. Because there's lawlessness taking place in this world. There are many antichrists that are alive and well in our world but at the same time, God is restraining them. And if we ever question the power of God ultimately over those whom he is restraining, check out the following verses. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will. What's the next word? What is it? It's okay. You can say it in church. Kill. This is Jesus often framed up as passive. This is Jesus killing the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth, which I really like because by his word, he formed the world. By his word, he will destroy his enemies. That's how powerful Jesus is. Doesn't need to give him a swat. Doesn't need to get out his sword. He speaks life and he speaks death. And bring to nothing. By the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Check this out. Those who are perishing. This of course specifically is in reference to those that are perishing coming into the tribulation period. But it also has implications for those who are perishing now in their unbelief. Why are they perishing why do unbelievers not like God? Why are they not saved? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refused it. Then there's a second point here. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. This is one of the most challenging verses in all of the Bible. God, the God of truth, sends a delusion in order that they might believe that which is untrue. 
Think about that for a minute. Why does he do this? In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So in time, the Bible's teaching us, in time, the God who is restraining evil will once and for all kill evil off. He will slay the wicked. Like, well, what about the people that didn't have a chance? What about unbelievers? What's our perspective on that? There's a couple things here that are theologically pretty powerful and necessary for us to consider. Those who are perishing refers to unbelievers who are easily deceived. And they have two things going against them. You play baseball, you're like one strike, two strike, three strikes, you're out. This is two strikes. The first strike against them is that they refuse to love the truth. They refused it. So this means that every human being is responsible because they willfully chose rebellion over surrender. Did you hear that? Every human being is responsible because they willfully chose rebellion over surrender. Even in the absence of an explicit gospel being preached, God has made himself clear through creation and the rejection of a creator The usurping of God's sovereign role, declaring yourself to be your own God, is to refuse the truth. So that's one strike against us. Second, as difficult as it might be to accept, it says God also sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So the way this works is that when we walk from God, and interestingly, all of us by nature do, When we walk from God, God sends a strong delusion to kind of buttress the falsehood that you've already found yourself in. God looks at the believer who refuses him and says, fine, I'm going to take your unbelief from 50 to 100 or 100 to 200. I'm going to up up it. And of course, in the absence of the God of truth and mercy, what happens? We just fall further and further into lies. That's why the trajectory of people's lives who do not love God is always down. It's lies to bigger lies to bigger lies. It's sin that doesn't satisfy to greater sin that doesn't satisfy to even greater dangerous sin that doesn't satisfy. It's a life of destruction. It's a life of godlessness. The longer you reject God, the worse you become. Because God allows you and in fact permits you and and pushes you towards greater delusion. Now this is not new to 2 Thessalonians. If you look back at Romans chapter 1, verses 23 to 24, speaks in that passage of God making it clear to them. But it says that the people exchanged the glory of God for idols. That's the evidence of God. This is why we say the Bible teaches very clearly there's no such thing as an atheist. The atheist says there is no God. The Bible says there are no atheists. Because the atheist knows because God has made it clear to the atheist that there is a God. That's self-evident. You don't really even have to argue that scientifically. It's self-evident. You're a creature, therefore there's a creator. You have a longing for love and acceptance and purpose. That means there's a lover. That means there's a purpose giver. Out there, it's evident. You look at design in creation, it's evident. 
Stop lying to yourself and lying to others. It's evident. But when it says they exchange the glory of God for idols, because man can't live without God, so if they don't like God, they make themselves God or something else God. God says in in that passage, he gave them up. It's the same idea. He just pushed them further into their sin. Or you can go back to the Exodus event where Pharaoh is refusing to let God's people go, and there's a series of plagues. And if you read the narrative carefully, it goes back and forth. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a both and thing. People harden their hearts against God, and God then hardens their hearts against him in judgment. And what this actually is, is a precursor, a foretaste of eternal damnation. Because in the eternal state of being damned, you will be completely cut off from the God of truth and love and purpose and meaning and glory. So this is a precursor to it in the here and now. When you live in rebellion against God, you actually have, you're actually living a life that is a foreshadowing of hell. So if you, if you reject God, you can expect yourself to be more confused, more susceptible to lies, characterized by greater unbelief. It's all part of God's judgment. And while everyone is an unbeliever, of course, from conception onward, no one's born saved. Unbelief only grows as part of God's judgment. So when God... Think about Jesus' ministry. This is fascinating for our evangelism and our ministry. It's freeing. It's a little sad, but it's also informative. Even in Jesus' ministry, if you study his movements, Jesus goes into an area and there's people following him and they're weeping and they're crying. Does Jesus ever say, get out of here? No, he reaches out and he heals and he restores. But if he goes into an area and they're like, get out of here, Jesus, we don't want you around shakes the dust off his feet, and he leaves. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, he actually tells his people, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're sharing your faith, when you're doing ministry, this is huge, folks, rarely taught. Check this out. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. You know, it's funny because sometimes we have this idea, well, I, I got this guy, I love him, I want to see him come to faith, and you should. I, I, I shared, I've shared the gospel with him a hundred times. Why are you doing that? That's not what Jesus did. Why, why, do you, why do you keep spending time and effort on someone who's clearly hard ground, who is living in a delusion that God has turned over to a delusion? That, that's not, they're not right for the harvest. You know what that is? That's a distraction. That's a distraction from the fields that are white unto harvest. And so as much as this might seem odd to you, we should actually be discriminate in our evangelism. I've shared the gospel. I've shared it twice, shared it three times. I've done my best. They're not listening. They're not interested. It's time to move on. I can't save that person by my own efforts. An example of this, I experienced this this week. I'm driving along. I had a little extra time. 
And I saw a homeless person um, out front of a mall, a strip mall. And I kind of felt that, that I should go and talk to them. So I went to the bank to get some money because I didn't have any money. And I drove back and I walked up to him and I said, can I, can I chat with you for a few minutes? He's like, yeah. And he was kind of all disheveled and food in his face. And I said, you're probably about my age. And I want, I want to let you know that I love you. I don't know you, but I love you as a fellow human. What would it take to get you off the street? He's like, well, I got to be honest with you. I'm an, I'm a substance user. We probably chatted for 35 minutes or so. He told me he's a substance user. His life's a disaster. We talked about some of the core issues. I shared with him that his root issue is not substances. It's a a lack of God in his life. I shared the gospel with him two or three times very explicitly. And I said, I'm going to give you some money, but I want you to listen to me first. I said to him, do you want to change and he said, no, I'm just not ready for that. The guy's life, he's, he's practically crying. His life's a disaster. He's an addict. He's lost his daughters. His family's walked from him. I said, well, obviously they're not, you know, they don't feel safe around you. But when I asked him, do you actually want to change? He said, no. He says, I, I need a place to live. I need this and that. I said, well, how much money do you make doing what you're doing? He said, I make about 2000 a month. So I'm going to give you some more money. Now, I know you're going to spend it on drugs. But when when I give you this money, here's what I want you to be thinking about. You didn't earn it. It's free. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn for your life. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gift. God wants to give you an even greater gift if you'll simply surrender yourself to him. And then I patted him on the shoulder and we kind of made some small talk and I left. Now I could go back there over and over again, but what became super clear to me is he's not interested. We had a good conversation. I think I demonstrated and proclaimed the love of Christ to him. I've, I've done my job, but I, if I can go back over and over again, unless he surrenders himself to Christ, it's a waste of my time. Now, does that make me, ha- no, it makes me sad. Because I know the solution to this man's problems. But he's not interested. And as believers, we need to be careful about this because there are some that are deluded, that have walked from the truth of God, and God's just pushed them further and further into it. Because they're not interested in having their lives irrevocably changed. We cannot convince people of the truth by just saying it over and over and over again. After a few attempts, as sad as it might be, we need to move on to whiter harvests. In all of this, though, God is sovereign over evil, is he not? He's sovereign over evil. If you want to stand firm, you need to guard yourself against false doctrine, but you also need to guard yourself against the despair that can so easily creep in when you think God is losing. God's not losing. The despair that people experience might be a result of God pushing them further into their delusion because they hate the truth and have refused 
to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we have a third truth here. So we have the mind protecting, the heart being protected, and then we have a relational section, firm in our relationship with God. So despite the dramatic events that have come already to the Thessalonican church, we have, in contrast to them, God looking at his church, those who have embraced God's truth, who haven't refused it, but have, have accepted the truth of God. And he speaks this word of encouragement into his body, into you today. But we ought always to thank God for you. I thank God for you. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers. Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you. That's a Bible word. Never shrink back from that word, folks. This is the gasoline of worship. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Through the sanctification by the Spirit. So this is his, his means of saving you. The sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. It's a work wrought by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to pay careful attention to the sequence of events here. Very, very important. We're going to go through them forward and then backward. Forward. God chose you. God chose you. The Bible tells us God chose you before the creation of the world, which is kind of mind-boggling in and of itself. God chose you before the creation of the world. The text goes on to say that he saved you through the sanctification. Through the sanctification means holy making. It refers to our holiness, but here it's the Holy Spirit making you holy and belief in the truth. So we have God chooses, God comes upon you with his spirit. At the same time, the word of God is revealed to you. And he calls you through those instruments unto himself. Who delivers the gospel to you? Other believers. Paul says, our gospel. They heard about the gospel through another believer. So looking at it backwards then, the believer preaches the gospel the full counsel of God, they are God's tools, God's instruments to declare the gospel. The Holy Spirit and Bible do their work. And because God has chosen you, you will be saved. The ultimate purpose of that is so that God might be glorified and you might participate in his glory. So we often say the mission of God is the glory of God. And God is glorified when his people come to saving faith in himself. So the response then, so then, the aftermath, so then is an afterword. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. The reason why we thank God, which is how this verse opens, the reason why we thank God for one another 
is not because I'm like, I'm thankful that you're so awesome. I'm thankful that you got it. I'm thankful that you chose to attend church a lot. I'm thankful that you're super holy compared to everyone else out there. The reason why I thank God for you is because you are proof that God is at work in our world. The reason why we thank God for one another is because God initiated our salvation. The reason why people don't like that is because they, they want their worship to be horizontal. They want to thank themselves for what they've done. But the Bible reveals to us the reason why our worship must be upward or vertical is because it's, this is not cause for arrogance. It's because God initiated the work in me. Thank God he sent his spirit and his word and people obeyed and actually communicated the word of God to me. But my worship is vertical. It's eyes off self, eyes off you, eyes on the king because the king set his eyes on me before the creation of the world. This is what fuels our worship church. He chose us, the Bible says, and he did so through the gospel which was preached by other believers. And the goal, of course, is Christ-likeness. Now, there are many Christians that I've met over the years who are like, but how can I know if I'm saved? You ever thought about that? How do I know I'm saved? Can I lose my salvation? Can I actually have the assurance of salvation? Can I know in this life that I'm actually saved? And some would say, no, you can't. And some would say, Yes, you can. And some would say, I have no idea. So let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Same church, a little bit earlier letter. Same writers, same recipients. And there, the Bible says, For we know, that's a word of certainty, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know that? Tell me how. How do I know if I've been chosen? Because our gospel came to you not only in word. I didn't just hear it. I didn't just intellectually attest to it. But there's more but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I'm saved? Because I heard the gospel, but hearing the gospel is not enough. The Holy Spirit took the gospel and did a transformative work in me. How do I know he did a transformative word in me? Because I am regularly convicted by the word of God. One of the signs of true belief, in fact, the critical sign is conviction. This is why the aim of our preaching is actually conviction. Never condemnation. We don't preach to condemn. I've heard a lot of condemnation preaching, shame bringing, guilt inducing preaching. We ain't into that. We're not into that. We aim for conviction. If there's conviction That's proof of salvation. It's not enough to believe the right thing. It's not enough. There must be conviction of sin. How do you know I'm saved? What do you believe? 
I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross according to my sins, was resurrected three days later, and now stands at the right hand of God the Father. Great, you're saved. Maybe not. Is your life being transformed? Are you convicted by sin? Are you living a life of ongoing repentance? Yeah. Now I know that you're truly saved. That verse goes on to say, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The goal of the apostles was to bring that about in the lives of their people. And it should be the goal of any preacher worth his weight in salt today to be used of by God, to preach the full counsel of God's word in order that God's people himself included might be convicted as a proof and ongoing evidence of the reality and authenticity of their salvation. This is a huge blessing to us. You don't know you're chosen until you're saved, but when you know, you give thanks to God for it. And again, because you're giving thanks to God for it, it drives you upward in your worship. Assurance is possible then precisely because you believed. And it makes makes no sense, by the way, to believe and be convicted and then wonder, how do I know I'm saved? (laughs) You, You already know because you believed and you were convicted. In fact, I would say that most people that are asking that question are proving that they are saved because they're convicted of sin. They may not understand the fullness of the gospel and their security in Christ. But again, belief and conviction proves the reality of your salvation. Likewise, lack of repentance, living in unconfessed sin, being okay with that, couldn't care less. That's not signs of true conversion. That's easy believism. Bible doesn't teach easy believism. It teaches believism, teaches believism, believism and convictionism at the same time. So why the call to stand firm? Well, we need to stand firm because we have a lot of enemies against us. If you take a piece of wood and you throw it out in the rain, it's going to get wet, and over time, it's going to decay. But if you put some outdoor stain on it, maybe some varnish, you can seal it up, and the water droplets are just going to beat off. And in the same way. These truths, I know the sermon's been very doctrinal. These truths are meant to seep into your life and saturate you and help you to withstand mental attack in the form of false teaching, attacks on your spirit in the form of attacks, desires to rob you of your hope. They're meant to galvanize you and help you to grow in your relationship with our loving Lord so that you might become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So do not waver, church. Stand firm in Christ to the end.